Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. This week's episode, we chat with painter Lauren Monk. Although you may know him as James Calm, that's his alter persona. You've probably seen his video reviews of New York gallery openings on YouTube under the Calm Report and James Calm Rough Cut. What, what Lauren does is he attends gallery openings in New York and he records the entire scene. He walks around to each painting. He shares his thoughts um, as a critic on the work. You get to see who attended the opening. Are there other artists there, collectors, um, people from other galleries? And Lauren has been doing this for almost 15 years now. So not only can you see recent openings, but you can also search YouTube and find old gallery shows from seven, eight, ten years ago, and you can see what it was like to be at those openings and what Lauren's initial impressions were of the art. I've used this a lot if I've recently discovered an artist, and so I didn't go to their opening, and I wanted to see what it was like, or maybe I'm just curious, what was an old body of work uh, like by an artist I'm familiar with? Well, you can simply search on YouTube and find old gallery openings. It's a really great resource for people in New York and outside of New York who can't attend a lot of these openings. So I highly recommend you check him out on YouTube under the Calm Report and James Calm Rough Cut. We talked to Lauren about how he started doing this, going into galleries and filming openings and sharing his thoughts on the art and how receptive have galleries been to this practice, what was it like initially, um, and now what are things like nowadays that everyone has a cell phone. Um, we also talked to Lauren about some of the trends in the New York gallery scene, um, transitions we're seeing in New York between neighborhoods, um, what artists he's had his eye on lately he's been really impressed by, and we also talked to Lauren about his art, um, which a lot of it involves actually mapping out the different art gallery uh, neighborhoods uh, in New York City. So it's a really fantastic conversation. We're really happy that we got Lauren on the podcast. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Adam, and uh, thanks for uh, getting Art Tactic to uh, give me a chance to spout off a little bit. Definitely. I'm I, over the years. I've I'm a big fan of you and your work um, on the Calm Report, and I know many of my friends within the art world community are also big fans of your work and. For people in New York um, who can't see these shows uh, in person or even just if they want to go back and search on YouTube just old exhibitions by artists that they're interested in that they just weren't interested in the art world back in that time. It's a really uh, fun uh, kind of time travel activity to see old shows. Yeah. But I guess before we even get into some of that, we should preface this uh, by kind of explaining what you do um, for some of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the Calm Report. So. Uh, Tell us uh, what exactly okay. you do with the Calm Report. Well, I, I've, I've got two channels. I've got the Calm Report, which, uh, gee, I'm thinking back on it now. I was listening to one of your podcasts. You're saying you've been on the air now for 10 years. Yeah. And uh, congratulations. Thank and you. I was thinking back, and it's about this time of the year. I was during an Armory show. I think it was 2006. So... I guess I'm starting into my 15th year doing this. And so I've got two channels. I've got the James Calm Report, which is what I started out with. And then probably about four, five years later, I started the Rough Cuts. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people can't tell the difference. But um, I just thought that I would try to make the Rough Cuts a little faster and uh, less production values, but uh, not that I have any production values with either one of them. 
but I just thought I would have one that would be a little more um, instantaneous. Um, so what I started doing, I'll cut this cut this story brief briefly. Um, I was writing and wrote for the Brooklyn Rail for about 13 or 14 years, and um, back probably around 2004, 2005. This is just when the internet and blogs and all that stuff was starting to take off. Um, the great Irving Sandler um, wrote a little article uh, in the Brooklyn Rail, and I think it was something like um, uh, "Shout out to art critics" or something to that effect. And um, what he was kind of uh, lamenting was the fact that, from his view, um, art criticism was dying out. And as I said, this was about the, at the time that the internet was really coming on, and a lot of hard copy uh, publications were changing. A lot of newspapers were dropping their their art critics and uh, reducing a lot of their their cultural coverage. And so he was saying that um, he thought that part of what was happening was just there was a change of the way the media is being consumed, but also. Um, You've got this uh, kind of a buildup of the the upper part of the art market. So you've got maybe a half dozen, maybe ten big time galleries that were able to pay or commission um, critics and things like that to write reviews or write basically essays, which comes down to kind of a sales pitch for their artists. And all of the other stuff, all of the actual critical um, part of the art review scene was dying out. So he was kind of, he was lamenting that. And, and some of the things that he was sort of posing as possible areas where people could sort of approach the art criticism was one was through blogging or finding out creative ways to use the Internet that hadn't been used before. Um, I think the other thing that he was talking about was he was he was saying that a lot of criticism up to that point had been kind of a little um, art critical ghetto, you know, where all the critics are talking to each other, but they're not talking to the general public, which was a problem. And um, so he was also calling for new voices, new voices to approach art and talk about it in new ways. So I read the article and I thought about it. And um, about the same time, I had... Uh, I'd purchased a new digital camera, and um, I'd always been interested in kind of the history of the local New York art scene. So previous to that, I'd gone around and just sort of snapped pictures and taken photos of artwork and things like that, but taken pictures of the openings, because I liked the idea of the art community. That was always important for me. Anyway, I bought a new digital camera, and um, one day I was coming home, and uh, I was downloading some photos, and I looked, and there was a little icon on there, and I'm going, gee, what the heck is that? And I click on it, and it turned out to be video. And I accidentally turned on my camera as I was coming off of the Manhattan Bridge, and so the camera's sort of dangling there and swerving around and getting pictures of the bridge and all this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's kind of funny, gee, blah, 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 you know. But I didn't really know what to, you know, make of that. <clears throat> so... I kind of put these two things together, the video and what Irving Sandler had said about new voices and new approaches to art criticism. And this is about the same time that YouTube started to take off. 
And uh, I've got a couple of very tech-savvy kids who came up to me and said, oh, gee, Dad, there's this new thing. It's called YouTube, and you can go in there and, like, see videos and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. So I clicked on to YouTube, and then about two days later when I <laughs> came down and uh, stopped watching videos, I put all three of these things together, the digital camera that I had, the call from Irving Sandler, and also what YouTube was doing, and I'm thinking to myself, God, there's got to be some way I could put these all together. And so I said, you know, I'll try to do something with the video on YouTube. And, of course, my natural interest was the, the art community and the art opening, so I just went to a, I guess it was a little, it was a fountain art fair, which was, I guess they're kind of defunct now, but uh, this is kind of a an alternative do-it-yourself art fair, and uh, I walked in, saw some people that had a gallery I knew, and I said, geez, we'll try this. So I just turned on the camera and started talking to them and said, you know, let's look at some of the work and talk about that. And um, I basically, uh, it was kind of embarrassing, but I basically learned how to edit video and, um, you know, do all the other things of spending, how much time you would spend looking at a particular piece before you would close in on, and I'm still learning, but I kind of just roughly put that all together and started posting videos. And over a period of about six or eight months, I think I posted about 80 of them. And then I realized that this was kind of in a certain way was a, I wouldn't say a totally new approach to art criticism, but I thought it was a, a kind of a, an interesting and just building on what was happening with the general kind of do-it-yourself, uh, new technology blogging vlogging world that was happening on the internet yeah i i mean i think one of the things i love the most about your videos is just the really it's first-hand perspective you know for people who aren't attending these openings they we get to feel the excitement of the openings we get to see the crowds and we get to see all the art and your commentary i think um, yeah no i i that's that's a very that's important the part thing. of what I, yeah a lot of people well, some people complain. It's like, oh, the openings are so noisy, and there's all these people that are grandstanding, or they're they're talking and they're not looking at the paintings. I always, at least for me, and like I say, I'm very interested in the the art community. It was always important for me to try to show that the art does not exist in some kind of sterile, clean space. That, and this is one of the other reasons. I always start the videos I'm usually out on the street and I walk up and I open the door and I walk into the galleries because you know living in New York and if you're part of the the art world you take a lot of this stuff for granted you know you just oh yeah I can go down the street and walk into Gagosian or something like that and it's just part of what I do but for a lot of people out there um, in video land you know they don't know that these things are all uh, accessible by the public. A lot of people, they'll say, gee, I thought you had to pay to go in the galleries or that you had to know some certain person or you had to do this or that. And so it's kind of, for me, it's a kind of a great opportunity to maybe familiarize people, make people feel less intimidated by these kind of cultural institutions. And also, to, you know, to show that you go to these things and there's a, a bunch of people just like them or kind of like them standing around talking about things. And if I'm lucky, um, 
you know, you catch certain personalities, you maybe talk to somebody briefly, they'll say something that's really interesting, and and then you just sort of hope, geez, I, you know, I hope the people that are watching will kind of use this and think to themselves, geez, I, I can go to a gallery, I can go out, I can talk about this stuff, I can think about this, and, and it's one of the great things that I enjoy doing the videos for. I'm curious how your relationship with the galleries has evolved over the years since you've been doing this. Um, you know, you talked about earlier here about how critics, uh, you know, cr criticism was kind of dying and galleries were commissioning um, critics or writers to write these yeah. kind of glorified essays about their artists for their shows. And um, now you have uh, yourself going into these galleries, filming, um, you know, giving your candid opinions about these shows. I think I remember an old video I once watched, maybe it was an old Mark Rochon uh, video at Gagosian, maybe five, six years ago. I think you said that, you know, oh, Gagosian's allowing me to film in here. They're not uh, trying to kick me out. Um, so I'm sure, <laughs> which which I thought was amazing. Um, I imagine I could no, film in, in every gallery, but what? how has that kind of changed your relationship with these galleries and just... I think even in general, just walking into these openings and just started, you know, filming and sh talking to yourself, right. you know, sharing your criticism on camera. Well, this is actually really interesting, Adam, because it kind of tells you or it shows you how um, society and social interactions change with the introduction of different types of technology. And so, as I said, I've been doing this and I think I'm going on 15 years. So... Uh, I actually, and I could probably, I did, I did one video specifically about people that had run me out of the galleries. <laughs> um, this is this is actually true. People would, oh, some people, of course, they realize. Well, a lot of people didn't know what I was doing, and they just thought I was crazy. It's like, who is this guy? He's walking around mumbling into this camera. I mean, how, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe we should call security. They would just sort of stand back, go, yeah, I'll let him do what he wants. Other people or other galleries, um, felt like somehow there might be some kind of, I don't know what, maybe copyright infringements or some kind of um, uh, breaking in or, or violating the some kind of intimate privacy that people f somehow felt that they had when they would go to a gallery. Also, uh, and this is, you know, not a, a small part of it, um, a lot of the galleries, you know, are showing, you know, I'll give you one example. No names here, but I went to a gallery. They did a lot of secondary market work. They had a show of some paintings or some paintings that were in a show that I liked and were thought were very interesting, except that these paintings were sort of there. They were maybe on sale, but they were also owned by someone who was in a I think they might have been getting divorced or something like that. So there were all these kinds of strange things that could turn into strange legal questions and people knowing that something was happening. And and a lot of this comes back to people's um, wanting to use the art market and not to change or not to affect that in anything that could be in any kind of a negative way somehow. So that was also something... But I think um, what's ended up happening is that because technology has moved forward, everybody's got a cell phone now. I just got a new cell phone yesterday, and I'm looking at the video quality on that, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is 
this is pretty darn good. And everybody's got a cell phone now. Everybody goes around, you pull out your cell phone, you push a button, and suddenly everybody's making video. So what's ended up happening over this 15-year period is that now um, the people who are taking videos are considered very normal. It's part of the way that you experience art. You know, in certain ways, I've been doing it for a long time, and I do it for the for the vlog. And so that's part of my work. A lot of other people, maybe they're sharing it, maybe not. And in certain ways, it's kind of a bad thing because a lot of these people are in there, and rather than experiencing the art firsthand and just looking at it and absorbing it, they're sort of making video. And I'm, I mean, there's certain things about it that I like. One of the things is that, you know, if I go to a show and I really like it and I there's something, maybe a particular painting or something that I like, I can kind of go in there and review it again and again and sort of look at the details and various other things, which is great, but it's not as good as being in front of the actual piece and doing it live and in, in real time. So those are some of the things. And, you know, there are other, other factors, but I, I just... And it's been amazing the way that... Um, People at the museums, for example, have changed. Um, probably within the first year or two, I went to a Whitney Biennial. And, of course, there was supposed to be no photography. But I go inside, and I start kind of, and I started sort of panning. And then one of the guards runs in and goes, oh, they caught you. You've got to turn off the camera, or we're going to throw you out. And <laughs> you can't do video here. And I sort of, as I turned around, it was interesting. And I, I you could go back in the files, I posted this all online but you could see that of course i couldn't make video in there but i was on video and so somebody was making video the security people were making video and it was great because they turned around you could actually see the little video monitors in the corner but um so that was probably 2008 something like that the whitney bio i went down for the last whitney biennial at the new the new whitney museum down in the west village and adam weinberg sees me and walks over to me, shakes my hand. I, I talk to him. I said, this is great. I'm so happy. The new museum is beautiful. So over a period of about 10 or 12 years, that shows you. And, you know, the guy that threw me out still still <laughs> recognizes me and comes over and shakes my hand and smiles at me. And But that kind of shows you the way that um, not only the technology has changed the way people think about all this stuff, but also the fact that people are using this in a certain way that can be useful to these institutions. And in a certain way, I think that they also realize that this is a very um, wonderful way of, of preserving a certain kind of art history. So I, I, you see so much art you've, uh, you know, for your, for your uh, channels, you're filming so much art, seeing so much art in New York. I wanted while we have you here, I wanted to ask you a few questions about some sure. um, your thoughts on some trends in the New York gallery scene, um, ask you about some artists, some galleries. But before we get into some specifics about galleries and artists, are there any, I guess, what are some, and it's kind of a broad question, but are there, are there any kind of trends you're seeing uh, maybe in terms of uh, just on the ground, uh, the New York gallery yeah. scene, whether it's, uh, you know, some kinds of art that's being made or um, art that's right. being shown or yeah I'm just curious if you have some general thoughts as to some trends you're noticing lately 
Well, you know, I'm I'm going to echo what uh, Judd Tully said on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and maybe amplify a couple of points on that. He yeah. was talking about the fact that um, there's been a great uh, increase in the interest in African American artists, and I would say that that is absolutely true, and it's long overdue. A lot of fantastic artists. The, and that, but there's a couple of different um, subheadings for that group, and I would say that um, people like Kerry James Marshall and and some of these people are getting a lot of attention. But then there's the the uh, outsider artists, the group that's been sort of uh, brought together by uh, Bill Arnett and the Souls Grown Deep uh, Foundation, which kind of the southern vernacular. African American artists, and they're getting a lot of attention now. Thornton Dial, I guess he's been getting a lot of attention for a long time. Purvis Young, Lonnie Holly, uh, the Geepen Quilters, these people. I think that people are starting to take a much deeper view of that. And like I said, Bill Arnett has done a great job. Um, he's got, I don't know, thousands and thousands of pieces, but he's been donating a lot of them and just one of the one of the great things in last I guess it was last spring or maybe early summer was that um, the Metropolitan put an exhibition together of part of the um, collection that he donated to them which was fantastic and when you start to think about how far these artists had to come from you know these very humble backgrounds in the south to being accepted into the Metropolitan Museum of Art and then to be exhibited and all of the attention and the catalogs and all this that were and articles and everything else that went along with it. That's pretty amazing that someone, of course they had to be very stubborn and, and hardworking over a long period of time, but they were able to get this to start to happen. So that's one thing that I think is very interesting. Um, the other thing is we're talking about um, women artists were also becoming very much more um, predominant. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I did this on purpose, but I've been out doing reports for about the last two or three months, and I was I was just looking. I don't pay a lot of attention. A lot of times I just like jump on the bike. It's like, oh, what's happening tonight? Who's interesting? Who do I know? What this and that. But I've been out maybe for the last two or three months, and I noticed, I think it's been running something like five to one for female artists, women artists, wow. which is not bad because I've, you know, there was like Hilma Alfklint, maybe one of the godmothers of, of feminist art or f women artists. She's got a fabulous show up at the Guggenheim now, um, Dana Schutz. And I think the other, the aspect of, of the interest in women women's artists that is also worth noting is that a lot of these are older women and um, you know because I've been hanging around the Williamsburg art scene for about the last 20 years something like that I know some of these ladies so someone like a Kathy Bradford who I followed for years and have probably put up at least four or five uh, reports about not only her shows but shows that she curated and shows that she's in when I start to see someone like that, I, I kind of joke about it. It's like they go out and they work hard, and then about the time they get to retirement age, boom, they become the hot young 
sexy yeah. artist out there, and I just think that that is so fantastic. And it's not only her, but uh, you know, Mary Heilman did this about uh, 15 years ago. Joyce Pensato has has kind of broken through and and achieved a lot of attention. Um, another person I've been watching for a long time, Margaret Luchek, is is kind of breaking through, and and people are paying attention. So I think those are a couple of things. I think the other thing is that uh, I've been a big fan of outsider art for many years, and it kind of relates to the Souls Grown Deep thing, which is I just think that um, the general public and maybe the the institutions and academia are now accepting the fact or recognizing the fact that a lot of this unacademic, uninstitutional um, kind of art by the outsiders is very important and um, so I see a lot of young artists who are, I wouldn't call them outsiders, but they're looking at outside art and they're sort of saying, you know, I can kind of maybe use some of these ideas. I can kind of play in the same realm as some of the outsider artists. And I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this stuff all comes together in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. But I see that as a big, a big influence and in something that a lot of people are paying attention to. And also, you know, let's face it, none of this um, stuff is going to get as much attention if it's not in the market and if there aren't things like art fairs and gallery exhibitions and collectors and people spending money and wheeling and dealing in that kind of world, you know, and publications and blogs and stuff that follow this stuff, if that stuff doesn't happen... Basically, all those kinds of um, marginal groups get ignored. There's one problem, and this is really um, involved with the outsider thing, and that is, you know, if somebody isn't a true an outsider, and this is a kind of a problematic uh, designation, when they start to be accepted and brought in as part of the ins and you know, when they go from being an outsider to being an insider and people start spending money and these people, you know, many of them are dead, so that doesn't matter for them. But a lot of people that are sort of coming up, maybe younger, who are suddenly being brought in and being put into exhibitions with um, mainstream artists and things like that, suddenly that whole designation of inside-outside starts to become kind of mushy, and I don't know whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. And so that's that's one of the other kind of interesting ways that uh, the art world and the aesthetics are changing today. Yeah, those are some really interesting trends you touched on. Um, it's great to see um, some of these groups of artists finally being recognized, um, as you mentioned. Yes. So, uh so it's really great to see. I also wanted to ask you about just, uh, you know, maybe over the last half a year, year, if there are some specific artists, um, specific exhibitions, specific galleries that on your journeys filming uh, uh, for your YouTube channels, um, if you've been really impressed with, um, that you think, you know, maybe there's some artists that our listeners should be um, following along uh not only just in your videos, but on Instagram and just following yeah. uh, their careers as they blossom. Well, let me think a little bit. 
we were talking about some of the trends that are aesthetic trends. I guess I should mention a couple of other things. Um, one of the things I see is um, a lot of artists, well, I shouldn't say a lot of artists, but a certain number of artists that have get, gotten some attention that are kind of, we're talking about technology and, and how that's advanced the way people consume art. I think that there are also, you know, some artists that are using um, computer programming, um, various things that they're using to create images, and then they're altering images. I think there's a guy named Matthew Stone that shows that the whole has been doing some... I mean, it, for me, <laughs> I'm purely a hands-on kind of caveman approach to painting and all that stuff, but, he, but Matthew Stone has been doing these pieces where he programs figurative elements and um, builds these huge, large um, tableaus of um, naked figures. And in certain ways, it's related very much to classic academic art. And then he kind of maybe goes in and, and or even um, creates illusions of piles of painters, big brush strokes and stuff. So he's kind of melding this all together. And... Um, I think there's another gentleman named um, Peter Schulwert, who shows as Miguel Abreu, who also is, and there are a lot of other people, but these two kind of stand up, who is also doing things where they, they kind of meld the um, computer graphic elements and various programs that they can create images and kind of use photography and um, other kinds of technological image making and then they're kind of melding that with painting and some of it is the illusion of painting put into uh, these kinds of created spaces and then there's also certain kinds of real paint that might then be applied on that so that kind of the melding of high-tech image making with very kind of uh, brusque physical painting and kind of the other side to that is a um, group of painters, and some of them are, are women painters that are using a lot of, just a lot of paint and slathering on a lot of paint. One of them is Vanessa Prager, who is a Los Angeles painter, and she slathers on, she does these large, some of them are large, mostly portraits and paintings of women. Some of them are classic, so they might be based on a, on a Rubens or a Titian, but then she slathers on the paint extremely thick and uh she had a show recently and one of the paintings was so thick that somebody i guess they skinned them over enough that they can ship them from la to, to new york somebody walked up and stuck their hand in the in the painting and then went around the gallery and kind of wiped his hand or her hand on the wow. walls on the, on the way out and i was it was great because i caught that on video and actually, oh, wow. somebody somebody like went through the video, stopped frame by frame, and they said, "I think it's this guy," because you could sort of see this guy raise his hand up. <laughs> you could say it was caught red-handed because his hand was red. Um, <laughs> so, so that's one one of them. And then the, there's another lady named um, Anna Weeder Blank who uh, has been showing out at uh, Honey Romka out in Bushwick, who I enjoy, and she also does a lot of very thick painting and she's dealing with kind of primitive uh, feminist uh, goddesses and biblical heroines and things like that very heavily painted and um, 
she's gotten some attention. Um, Carolyn Larson, who also shows that uh, The Hole has it, well, I guess it was up until about a week ago, had another series of paintings which was very heavily painted. So I, as I was saying, you've got on one side, you've got the people that are taking really high-tech, very smooth, digitally printed things that they're programming the imagery with computer programmings and then sort of alluding to paint. And then you've on the other side, you've got some painters that are just like slathering on the paint by the pound, and some of these paintings probably weigh 30, 40, 50 pounds just in the paint. So those are a couple of a couple of things I've been noticing. Um, maybe we should talk about some of the neighborhoods as well, you know, because that's always, at least for me, kind of an interesting way that the the art community expands. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that ties into your art as well, right? Because you're exactly um, for our listeners. Maybe our, some of our listeners and even some people who view your um, videos on YouTube might not know that you are a painter as well. Um, and uh, you know, if they check out, if they visit your websites, laurenmonk.com, right. they can see a lot of your art. And I know you and a lot of pa- your paintings. Um, so in addition to having thoughts about kind of the neighborhood breakdowns, you paint it actually. Um, so That's yeah, right. share share some of your thoughts on the kind of neighborhood scenes um, at the okay. moment, and uh, you know how how you're uh, documenting that in your paintings. Well, as I said, I've been I, I guess I've been living in New York since 1979, and so it's always been very interesting for me to sort of think about how art progresses and art communities develop and evolve and and devolve over time. So I came into New York in 1979. This was about the time that Soho was really getting off the ground. And when I was a young artist, you know, I was going to school at the Art Students League on the GI Bill. But on Friday nights, you know, we would take off and we would go down to Soho. And, you know, I didn't know anything about New York. I didn't know what it was to be <laughs> an artist or any of these other things. Mm-hmm. So it was very exciting for me to go down and, and sort of walk around Soho and to try to discover where all this stuff was happening at and who who were people paying attention to and why were they paying attention to them and what was happening. So I started to spend a little more time down there and you start to pick up, you know, gallery guides and, you know, Art in America has every year they have a a kind of a review where they list all of the various galleries and the different shows and the different artists and all these things. And I started to start started understanding that this is what an art community is and that um, if you wanted to kind of understand how art history is made, that you you had to understand that the art community is a, is a field. I think it's Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, came up with these great ideas of the field of cultural production. So the art world is a field of cultural production. And as I started to pay attention to this, I started to realize, you know, as these communities change, the art starts to change. So as I said, I came in and I started running around Soho and going to galleries. And so he got to know, yeah, 420 West Broadway. That was always great. You know, there was Leo Castelli and then there was Mary Boone, Andre Emmerich and Ileana Sonob, and they all had the galleries in that particular building, so that was kind of an anchor for that community. And then branching out from that, you had a you know, bunch of other galleries and people in lofts and things like that. 
anyway, I became so fascinated with this that I guess it's probably now about 20 years ago, I started making maps kind of historically documenting where a lot of these things were happening and whose loft was here and what gallery was there. Anyway, as I said, I came into town. Soho was the big thing. But over a couple of years, Soho sort of became a little um, petrified. It uh, it kind of changed its character and became kind of overly conceptual, overly academic. Uh, a lot of this had to do with the the art market and the kind of constraints that people would have if they wanted to compete in the commercial realm. And so you had the East Village started to take off. off. Now the East Village, in a certain way, it had to be on the total, you know, the, the dialectical opposite end of the spectrum from Soho. So the East Village, you know, Soho was very cool and very intellectual and very sleek the East Village had to be exactly the opposite, so it was very raunchy, it was very scuzzy, it was very dirty, uh, a lot of DUI stuff. Uh, this is where a lot of the gay liberation and uh, drugs and uh, parties and graffiti and all that scary stuff started 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 to come on. And in a certain way, it was very interesting to see how over a period of about only three or four years, the East Village was able to kind of supplant Soho, not only um, in the interest that it was getting in the press and things like that, but also aesthetically. And then, of course, within about two or three or four years, I guess, 1988, 89, the East Village crashes, and you have actually had two dual things sort of taking off at the same time. You had a kind of like a Soho on steroids with the Chelsea thing, um, that was a whole neighborhood unto itself, but it was a different kind of a neighborhood. It was mostly industrial buildings, a lot of industrial buildings. Uh, there weren't a bunch of loft buildings like there had been in Soho. So it kind of changed the kind of gallery spaces that uh, people were building. When the gallery spaces changed, the type of art that is shown in the gallery spaces changed. Um, that kind of changes everybody, you know, everybody has to react to this, so people are, make, you know, some people, it, it was kind of interesting because you had Chelsea taking off on one side, which was very commercial, was in a certain way, it was totally synthetic, say with the East Village or with Soho, you had a lot of artists living in the neighborhood in the East Village, that tradition of the artists there goes back like 120 years or something, whereas Chelsea was kind of, there'd been a few people over there, but it basically was kind of created by people like Gagosian and Mary Boone and these people that all moved in there and started building these huge galleries. But as I said, that started to affect the kind of work that was being shown there. Simultaneously, when the East Village crashed, you had a lot of people that kind of ended up going over to Brooklyn, and you had Williamsburg, which also was more like the East Village in that a lot of it was do-it-yourself um, artists that would have loft spaces and maybe they would close them down on the weekend or maybe they, they would they would take the stuff out of their studio for a month and they would have a little pop-up show there and do that two or three times a year. And they were all kind of organizing things through phone trees and different kinds of communication networks. So they were kind of battling the, the corporate art thing that was going on in Chelsea in their own way. 
And it was interesting to see how these each one of these communities, as I said, um, kind of changes the way that the art goes, the way that what you can show, um, the kind of aesthetics you're dealing with, the kind of artists, the young versus the old, or the established versus the unestablished, or the, the people that are um, just doing it for the love of it, and other people that are coming out of Yale or, or Harvard with you know master's degrees in art. So you have these contrasts. Um, and then I got very involved in, in a lot of ways. My, my particular group and neighborhood kind of was the Williamsburg scene, and I followed that pretty intensely for, and I still do, except it's pretty much evaporated. Uh, I started spending a lot of time, and a lot of the writing that I did for the Brooklyn Rail was based on, on the Williamsburg scene. And... Uh, well, I actually did a I did a map that was uh, exhibited at Pierogi uh, maybe a month and a half ago on a wonderful show that was curated by Raphael Rubenstein and Heather Rubenstein, and it was a map that I'd done. I started it in 2008 and it took me, you know, several years, but it kind of captured that Williamsburg art scene from the early aughts. And I was looking at that at the opening, and I'm going and I'm started to count, and I said, "Gee, there's like there's there's 90 galleries on this map." So that was from 1985 to 2008, something like that. So, you know, 25 years, roughly something like that. Anyway, so I'm looking at that, and I'm talking to someone next to me, and I said, geez, you know what, there's none of these, there's two galleries that are on this map that are still functioning out there in Williamsburg. So uh, that whole scene moved on. And then what's ended up happening now is that all of that kind of moved out to Bushwick, and, uh, well, I was up at spring break last night running around looking at some of the shows there. And even Bushwick, which kind of took off, I guess, probably about 2008, 2009, 2010. At this point, Bushwick has kind of started to evaporate as well. And some of them are going, some of the galleries are going out into Ridgewood, which is farther east. And the other thing that I kind of, uh, noticed when I was running around at spring break is that, uh, there's a group of probably a half a dozen galleries now that are have opened up in Harlem. So that's just briefly, that's kind of the way that I've seen the shift go on. So we started with Soho, then it was the East Village, then it was Chelsea, then it was Williamsburg, then it was Bushwick, and perhaps the next place could be Harlem. And as I said, each one of these neighborhoods is its own kind of its own little um, spice that it adds on to the art that is created there. So that's kind of what you can maybe look forward to. Yeah, that's that's interesting to learn and to hear that history that you've uh, you know been painting as well uh, over the years. Um, yeah, the I only hear, problem I, for me, yeah, the only problem for me is that Harlem is a long way for me to go on my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can make it up to the Guggenheim. I don't know what that's 89th Street, but when I start getting up to 140th Street up in Harlem, that these old legs are <laughs> have a hard time pedaling up there. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I know you will. I know you will. Well, uh, Lauren, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and chatting with us about uh, your history with uh, the James, James Combs and James Calm Rough Cut. I think those videos are just really, uh, really important and really capture, uh, you know, capture the op- these openings um, unlike anything else. And it's 
great uh, for people who don't live in New York or who just want to go back and look at thing, look at uh, maybe artists they've recently started to become interested in, look at some of their openings um, and what what it was like uh, to attend them, really. And um, yeah. and then your art as well, uh, chronicling uh, you know the history of uh, the New York art scene and how it's evolved. If our listeners want to learn more about uh, your see some of your paintings and learn more about your career, they can do so at uh, laurenmonk.com. Yeah, spell that out. Yeah, tell us. What's the the website? www.lorenmunk.com. And, uh, well, I'd like to thank you, Adam, and uh, our tactic for having me on. Uh, I think what you're doing as well is very important. And as I said, you know... (coughs) You've been in it for 10 years. I've been in it for a little bit longer. But um, I think we've been very privileged to kind of um, take part in this technological, cultural revolution. And uh, and it's nice that uh, we can sort of be out there and um, be watching each other's backs. Absolutely. I agree. It's uh, It's been a fun – it's been a fun ride and uh... – you know, it's just and it's te- still happening. <laughs> exactly, it's getting with with technology and the way more and more people either listen to podcasts or consume videos um, on their mobile devices and on the internet. It's right. uh, the audience is just growing more and more. So it is it is really exciting. Um, Lauren, thanks so much again. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Adam. <laughs>